Hello, and welcome to the DH Podcast. I'm Rachel Rochester. On May 8th, I had the pleasure of recording Marjorie Perloff's talk, Reading the Verses Backward, Poetry for the Digital Age. Marjorie Perloff is a leading scholar of contemporary poetry. She served as the president of the ACLA from 1993 to 95, was the president of the MLA in 2006, and is currently the president of the Chinese American Poetry Society. Her most influential books include Radical Artifice, Writing Poetry in the Age of Media, and Wittgenstein's Ladder, Poetic Language and the Strangeness of the Ordinary, which remain essential reading for those interested in poetry and poetics. Her talk took place in Girdlinger Lounge at the University of Oregon and was co-sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences, the Oregon Humanities Center, the Departments of Romance Languages, Comparative Literature, Latin American Studies, and Translation Studies Working Group. Please enjoy the recording, which has been left uncut to faithfully present the talk itself. Hi. So um, I'm not actually going to talk about digital poetry, you'll see, but how poetry differs, or should, I hope differs, and with a lot of different examples of what people are doing. In an early scene in James Joyce's The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, young Stephen Dedalus, a homesick schoolboy at Klongo's Wood College, is leafing through his geography textbook. And he and this is a quote from Joyce. He, can you hear? Is the mic close enough? He turned to the flyleaf of the geography and read what he had written there, himself, his name, and where he was. Stephen Dedalus, class of elements. Clongows Wood College, Salins, County Kildare, Ireland, Europe, the world, the universe. That was in his writing, and Fleming one night for a cod had written on the opposite page, on the bottom there, Stephen Dedalus is my name, Ireland is my nation, Clongows is my dwelling place, and heaven my expectation. He read the verses backward, but then they were not poetry. That sentence really stopped me cold the most recent time I read Portrait of the Artist. He read the verses backward, gave me my title, but then they were not poetry, of course not, because poetry is Stephen, like all children of his day, indeed like all readers before the 20th century were taught, is written in metrical verse, in this case, the common ballad stanza using trochaic, dactylic meter and rhyming ABCB. And so of course you can't reverse the lines, much less the words, and have a proper poem. Today, a hundred years after the publication of Portrait, the situation in poetry is very different. Some people would claim that Stephen's own entry might be considered a poem, its lineation putting great stress on individual words, culminating in universe, and then again there are those of us who would derive pleasure from turning Fleming's little jingle around. Expectation, my heaven, and dwelling place. Wouldn't that be a poem? Some say you saw it somewhere, you wouldn't think it wasn't particularly, so of course we now think you can turn the words around. Rhyme, we notice, no longer requisite for poetry, and neither is any kind of fixed meter or even recurrent rhythm. It was Joyce and his contemporaries who first questioned the poetry-verse relationship. Walt Whitman is sometimes cited as the father of free verse, but the fact is that Whitman's long lines, yes, I celebrate myself, uh, marked by anaphora, repetition, and marked recurrence of phrasal rhythm, clearly differentiating these lines from prose. And they are certainly not reversible. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me is good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. 
It was Joyce's friend, Ezra Pound, who created the revolution we associate with 20th century poetry in English. A poem like The Coming of War, Acteon, is a spatial as well as a verbal construct. And I'm just going to go through these things quickly, but you'll keep them in the back of your mind. An, uh, an image of Lethe and the fields full of faint light but golden, and beneath them a sea harsher than granite, unstill, never ceasing, high forms with the movement of gods. Perilous aspect, and one said, this is Acteon, Acteon of golden greaves, over fair meadows, over the cool face of that field, unstill, ever moving, hosts of an ancient people, the silent cortege. Now here the layout minds the poets and the reader's process of discovery. The great cliffs are seen first, and only then, in the next indented line, do we learn what is beneath them, namely a sea. By the time we get to the peace encounters, Here's just a sample page from the Peace and Cantos. A given page will contain anything from Chinese ideograms, abbreviations like you would come here, uh, with WD for wood, to phonetic spelling about a third of the way down there is mine eyes have seen, mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. My eyes have seen, well yes they have seen a good deal of it. Or there will be the little phrase, um, which comes up about 10 lines from the bottom. Contract W110090. I think Pound was one of the first people to do that. He's giving a phone number, but 000 with an OH90. Contract, contact W110090. And then there are foreign phrases and citations, all arranged to create a unique spatial design. Pounds of pages that have to be seen, read aloud, the effect of the four italicized words that come about 10 lines down, hot in italics, hot, whole, hep, cat, cannot be the same than if they were laid out differently. And actually, those four lines keep coming up in previous and later pages. The cat comes back, and the whole hot, whole, hep, cat, like hup, two, three, four, and all kinds of things are done both with the sound and the <coughs> visualizations of that. Now, Pound's contemporaries didn't go as far as he did, but bear in mind that, say, Marion Moore, also renounced traditional metric forms by using syllabics in a poem like the Steeplejack, one of her famous poems here. The chosen stanza has a syllable count of 11, 10, 14, 8, 8, 3. Reading it aloud, we may elide line endings since the stress count is irregular, but on the page, the stanzas match nicely. You, you can see it the way it is. And that's been argued a great deal. Often people say, this is just a game. This is bogus, because English is basically a stress language. Dura would have seen a reason for living in a town like this. So you're never, never going to hear that pattern. But you can also argue that the pattern plays off against the sound, and that that's a very pleasurable thing. And Eliot's wasteland uses spatial devices throughout for special effects, as for example, and I just put it at the bottom of the page here, in the, in the wasteland, Unreal City. Now, you know, in the original, before Pound crossed it out, it was Unreal City, I can sometimes see you. See, or I can sometimes hear and see. And, and Pound took a pencil right through that. It's not very effective. Let that line stand alone. Unreal City became very famous. Unreal City, under the brown fog of a winter dawn. But where Eliot knew, too, that spatial design is very important, how it looks on the page. It's going to matter. And it also determines, of course, the way you read it. Um, 
Early 20th century poetic design was, as Hugh Kenner notes in his delightful short book, The Mechanic Muse, closely linked to the invention and development of the typewriter. When we compare the poems of W.B. Yeats, 20 years pound senior, always first written in longhand, and then typed out, often by someone other than the poet, to the lyric of pound, the difference is startling. Yeats had no use for blank verse, much less free verse. And he said, if I wrote a personal love or sorrow in free verse, or in any rhythm that left it unchanged, amid all its accidents, I would be full of self-contempt, because of my egotism and indiscretion, because of my egotism and indiscretion, and foresee the boredom of my reader. I must choose a traditional stanza. Even what I alter must seem traditional. Now, not surprisingly, Yeats disapproved of Pound's cantos, although Pound was a good friend in a way, but stormy friendship. Um, but he, he, had, he, he disapproved of them, which do experiment with what Stephen Dedalus considers the not, kind of not poetry. And, and um, Yeats said this, which became quite famous, and it's in the Oxford book of modern verse, which he edited in 1932. Like other readers, I discovered present merely exquisite or grotesque fragments. Can impressions that are in part visual and part metrical be related like the notes of a symphony? When I consider his work as a whole, Pound's work, I find more style than form, at moments more style, more deliberate nobility, and the means to convey it than any contemporary poet known to me. But it is constantly interrupted, broken, twisted into nothing by its direct opposite, nervous obsession, nightmare stammering, confusion. Style and its opposite can alternate, but form must be full, sphere-like, single. Even where there's no interruption, he's often content if certain verses and lines have style to leave unbridged transitions, unexplained ejaculations that make his meaning unintelligible. Even where the style is sustained throughout, one gets an impression, especially when he's writing Ver Libre, free verse, that he has not got all the wine into the bowl. Now you can imagine that Powell wasn't too pleased by that comment, getting all the wine into the bowl. This is the ultimate insult, in a way. And Yeats, interestingly, had similar res uh, reservations about Joyce's development. Having praised Ulysses upon its publication in 1922, telling Pound that he was reading it a few pages at a time, as if it were a poem, he wrote Pound, and that some passages have great beauty, lyric beauty, Yeats was soon admitting that he never finished it. As for Finnegan's Wake, that hybrid text, published a year of Yeats' death in 1939, evidently stymied the old Irishman completely. I mean, he just couldn't, you know, what is that? Uh, that's not really a poem. So that, that's a great watershed that happens there. Now, Yeats was, of course, on the losing side, so far as modernist and especially avant-garde experimentation was concerned. But where do we stand a century later? By the 1960s, such poets as Yeats, Robert Frost, and Philip Larkin, notwithstanding, Anglo-American poetry generally meant free verse. Black Mountain poets, New York poets, the Beats, the Movement poets, all wrote free verse. And today, free verse, usually a diluted version of such early models as Frank O'Hara's I Do This, I Do That poems, or Adrian Rich's Snapshots of a Daughter-in-Law, has become so fully the norm that when one picks up any periodical or anthology of new poet poetry, it is taken for granted that the poems included do not use meter, stanza form, or rhyme. Even the designation sonnet usually means no more than that the poem in question has 14 lines, which I think is really sort of silly. You know, you have all these people say, oh, I wrote some sonnets. Well, anybody can write 14 lines, <laughs> not very hard. Um, <laughs> never mind the standard iambic pentameter or Petrarchan 
ABBA, ABBA octave, or the Shakespearean sonnet. Same thing with terza rima. Now it sort of refers to the use of terzas. You'll see in Poetry Magazine people saying they're writing terza rima. And all it is is that they're using three-line open terzas. There's nothing particularly remarkable about it. For a variety of reasons, much of contemporary free verse, the staple of our own poetry magazines, anthologies, and individual collections, is curiously indifferent both to the experimentation of the avant-garde and to the more immediate revolution of our own day, which is, of course, the digital revolution. Now, consider the popular poetry of Sharon Olds, who just won a $100,000 prize, one of the big prizes, um, the, the Wallace Stevens Lifetime Award from the Poetry Foundation of America. So I felt I could do it because she had, is so prize-winning. Now here is a poem from the volume Stag's Leap, 2002, which chronicles the pain of Olds' divorce after 22 years of marriage. And here are the first 15 lines of the 33-line Telling My Mother. Outside her window, a cypress under the weight of the Pacific wind was bending luxuriously to tell my mother that my husband is leaving me. I took her on a walk, taking her fleshless hand like a passerine's claw. Bought her a, a donut and a hairnet. I fed her. I'm ignored magnolia in the fog. The blossoms and buds were like all the moons in one night, full gibbous crescent. I practiced the speech, bringing up toward the truth slowly, preparing her. And the moment I told her, she looked at me in shock and dismay. But when will I ever see him again, she cried out. Now, for Olds' admirers, what makes this text a poem is evidently its sense of authentic voice. The poet tells it like it was, not disguising any of her feelings and pinning them down with some precision. The poems, writes a recent reviewer in the TLS, find their strength in subject matter conveyed with a conversational ease. The reader can readily identify with this poet who doesn't paper over her difficulties or blame others for them. Written in straightforward sentences, draped over the sequence of lines, there's little figural language, the simile of the fleshless hand as a passerine canary's claw, relates, of course, to the gnarled magnolia and to the gibbous crescent moon, all images of the withering of old age the poor mother represents. But otherwise, the language is mostly straightforward, indeed, the language of prose memoir. And so I just set it off in prose for fun. I actually think it's better in prose. <laughs> you see, if it's in prose, if it's in prose, like in the New Yorker, it looks like a New Yorker short story. And then you sort of pay attention to it. Outside her window, a cypress under the weight of the Pacific wind was bending luxuriously. To tell my mother that my husband was leaving me, I took her on a walk, taking her fleshless hand like a passerine's claw. I bought her a donut and a hairnet. I fed her. And the moment I told her, she looked at me in shock and dismay. But when will I ever see him again, she cried out. And, um... It's identifiable, of course, as a poem because it is lineated in the first, in the real version. But what I've called elsewhere the linear fallacy, this is an article I wrote long ago in the Media Reprint, but I've got to reprint it finally. It was in the Georgia Review and it was about Robert Pinsky. Um, the notion that lineation is such guarantees the status of a text as a poem should give us pause. Not only can I represent Old's poem as prose, as I've done above, I can also alter the line breaks. And that's what I did at the bottom. Now, look back a minute. Trying to remember some of them. All I did was just change the lines a little bit. Outside her window, a cypress under the weight of the Pacific wind was bending luxuriously. Can you tell the difference? To tell my mother that my husband is leaving me, I took her on a walk, taking her fleshless hand like a passerine's claw. I changed just about every line, just slightly. I made the line end somewhat differently. And you really, I think it would be hard. I, did, I wonder whether she would even 
really notice the difference. Now, my difficulty with such writing is there seems to be no observable relationship between telling my mother and the modes of production involved in its genesis, transmission, and publication. Given contemporary sound and visual technologies, the possibilities of montage, splicing, mashing, overlaying, erasure, multimedia, it's hard to understand why a poem should still be equated with a lineated block of black print, almost always in loose free verse, surrounded by the white space of a book or a magazine page. In this regard, the mainstream press, say Alfred Knopf, Farrar Strauss, the London Review of Books, the New Yorker, are much more cautious than is your very own PowerPoint program or whatever, whatever word program you use. Well, you can play with fonts, you can make things bigger and smaller, you can, you can italicize for emphasis, you can do all kinds of things, and on Facebook we have our little faces, and so forth. There are all kinds of things we do, but it seems as if poetry is immune from that, and it looks just about the way it looked 100 years ago. If you look at Poetry Magazine and then look at Poetry Magazine, which did already exist 100 years ago, you'll be hard put to find much difference. Consider, too, the role the digital archive plays in changing our ways of thinking about poetry. When I went to graduate school, Blake's songs of innocence and of experience were known primarily through anthologies that featured the sick rose, the tiger, the nurse's song, the Claude and the pebble, side by side with Wordsworth's Lucy poems and Keats's odes. We knew these little songs of experience had their illuminated plates, um, but these could only be studied in special collections in the library and were considered a kind of extra. Now that we have superb reproductions online of the various Blake archives, and that the tiger is to be understood in its context, and here's the sick rose, I, it, people study Blake quite differently. You no longer feel you can just divide the visual and the verbal, and you wouldn't do that, and that's because the technology has made it possible for us to do it very differently so that students would take it for granted. You don't have to put on the white gloves and go to that you know, rare book room of the special library and see them. Um, okay, so that is the way that I think that works. Poetry, said Ezra Pound famously, is news that stays news. It's the discourse that cannot be read and consumed at a single reading, it can only be reread. As Wittgenstein put it, do not forget that a poem, although it is composed in the language of information, is not used in the language game of giving information. In this sense, poetry is a timeless art. We associate it with intensity, condensation, complexity, and figuration, whether tropical or rhetorical. Each age, however, makes use of the poetic technologies appropriate to it. And I guess that's the fight today, whether one feels it's just changeless and can be the same forever or not. And in ours, the blurring of boundaries between the verbal and the visual, the verbal and the musical, between individual language, I know some of you are working on multilingual poetry, it's one of the features, and genres and media is bound to create new options and demands. For one thing, poetry has become increasingly differential, as I call it in the book by that name. The poem is no longer a fixed immutable text on the page. It often adopts variants so that the print text may morph into performance or video or become the occasion for installation. In his recent Sao Paulo Museum retro retrospect, Reve, that was just done in Sao Paulo, the Brazilian concrete poet Augusto de Campos has even rendered one of his poems as a sculpture, Cardigo. Now, the Cardigo, this was done in 1973 as a poem on a page. The Portuguese word for code was originally designed for the page. A complex ideogram, cadigo, the word immediately evokes the Latin cogito, the short form of Descartes, cogito, ergo sum, contains at its center the palindrome god and dog. 
and he was very aware of that. And in Portuguese, código is also the paragraph, co plus digo, so I speak yields, I co-speak, I speak collectively. The notion of collective speech is expressed by the circular design of código, cogito. and a few years ago, Campos, de Campos transformed his concrete poem and made a sculpture out of it. And when I went to the show in Sao Paulo, there are various versions, there are video versions, and they become like old friends. You say, there's Cogito, and look what he's done with it now. Mm -hmm. And so there it's standing up, you know, in the museum, and you'll see all the things on the walls behind it, and transformed it that way. He bisected the poem, extended to make a rod, connecting Compass's globe to the square platform on which it stands, as if to say the code is we speak, therefore we are. And notice that the middle black circle opens up as if to call the ideogram into question. Cogito, cogito, code. Campus's ideogram is much closer to conceptual art than it is to what we now call conceptual art than it is to conventional lyric. The Brazilian poet reveals nothing about his personal life, although his way of making poetry is highly individual. The aesthetic that stands behind such new poetries, even when the poet is not fully aware of the direct of the derivation, is I think that of Marcel Duchamp. And Duchamp is, for me, you know, I've said it in various places, but the key figure, for, and, and has still not yet to be surpassed as, as somebody who could invent things. And one of the things that, uh, that Duchamp said that I think about often in relation to this is that the idea of repetition, as he told an interviewer in 1960, is a form of masturbation. Now, what did he mean by that? By repetition, he had in mind the hardening of what was originally an innovative idea and techniques into a signature style that is then trotted out again and again so as to please the art public or the poetry public and earn fame and fortune. His own friend Man Ray might have been a case in point. Man Ray was such a wonderful artist that in his later years more or less imitated himself and people I think agree it's much weaker. And here a, a, a comment, oh, I don't have that one. I'm sorry, but John Cage is apposite. Cage who also learned so much from Duchamp and whom we are so indebted to today. If we take the path of looking for relationship, we slip over experience-wise all those things that are obvious, like repetition. But if we change our mind and turn utterly around and refuse the business of relationship, we will be able to see that those things that we thought were the same are in fact not the same. And this is very useful in our lives, which are more and more going to have what appears to be repetition. Now in a world like that, the perceiving of difference, the repeated mass-produced items, in the repeated mass-produced items is going to be of the greatest concern to us. So repetition, as Cage and Duchamp understand it, is the downside of art making in the age of mass production. What is needed instead is a focus on difference, on the markers that identify specific work despite its seeming like likeness to others. Replication can thus be understood as a form, not repetition, but replication, and he did replicate his work, of a form of what Duchamp called the delay. That is, if the artist or poet takes his or her early work seriously enough to represent it, like Cotigo, inevitably in revised form, since revision is inherent in the mere act of replication, the reader view is challenged to delay or defer complicated uh, contemplation. So there isn't one, and of course, Gertrude Stein said this way back, isn't this, the, nothing is ever the same. If you repeat, the more you repeat, the more you repeat, the more different something becomes. You hear it differently, other things are going on, the context changes, so it really isn't the same. And Vicky says it, but it isn't the same, it is the same? No, the answer is not. Now, in the winter of 1934, 
Cushon wrote to Walter Ahrensberg about his plans to issue a facsimile edition of his notes and documents. This isn't a very good photograph. I made this of my own version of it. Um, of the um, so-called large glass. His, his version is called the Green Box. Uh, between 1912 and 1915. His plan was to reproduce approximately 135 handwritten notes and a dozen photographs of the key paintings and drawings used for the composition of the glass. Individual items reproduced in color type were to be placed in a green cardboard box. In the luxury edition, it was green leather. This green box bears the title of the original large glass, La Mariée Mise à Nu par ses célibataires men, the bride ended by her bachelors even. And the sale price for the individual boxes was quite high. There's one at the North Simon, there's one at the Getty, uh, various museums have them. I've discussed elsewhere how difficult the process of reproduction actually was. It looks easy, but it isn't. Duchamp had to find the exact ink he had used in 1913, reproduce the color of the early paintings, and so on. The point being that, of course, no replica could be exactly the same. Derided as mere fraud by earlier critics, the production of this in the later Bois en Valise has become increasingly admired. Just this year, Walter Canning, published, publishers in Cologne, have reproduced a version, and I bought this. It's for sale at various bookstores, and I got it from Amazon. You can get it from Amazon.com for a little over $100. So I bought it, and I have it standing right there. So I bought um, the box, and you realize you have Duchamp's entire world in the front there, where the notes are. All his works are reproduced, of course, in miniature. All the paintings he did, all the poems, everything he did is all in there. Plus, you have all his famous things, the fountain, which is the urinal, the comb, um, the chocolate grinder, the, uh, the bachelors, and they're all there in miniature. And, and on the right, you have the new descending a staircase. And there's a good story about that, that when he was making this replica, he ran into Walter Benjamin on the street. And Benjamin hadn't liked the original new descending a staircase. But he liked this one. He liked the colors. He said, that's really good. And it's much smaller, you know, it's a replica. But of course, a replica is always different. So I thought this was one thing worth buying a reproduction of, because the original is a reproduction anyway. In other words, again, you can go to the Getty, you have to wear white gloves, and go make an appointment with the rare book room, and then they bring out the green box, and you're allowed to shuffle the papers around and so on. But I have it right on my dining table, my table in my study at home, and I'm very thrilled to have it. And a lot of my friends have bought it too, so I just wanted to show you that. That reproduction, that fact, similar. And that all our old friends are kind of inside. Now, the difference in question, that is the smallest possible difference, where something is the same thing, but it's bigger or smaller or done differently, was called by Duchamp himself the inframas or the infra-thin, I-N-F-R-A, the infra-thin. The word Duchamp claimed was indefinable, one could only give examples of it. So here are some examples of infra-thin. The warmth of a seat which has just been left is infra-thin. Subway gates, the people who go through at the very last moment, infra-thin. Velvet trousers, their whistling sound and walking by and brushing off Two legs is an infrathin separation signaled by sound. Infrathin separation between the detonation noise of a gun very close and the apparition of the bullet hole in the target, that moment in between. And finally, just touching, 
While trying to place one plane surface precisely on another plane surface, you pass through some infrathin moments. So this, of course, is all tongue-in-cheek. I mean, these aren't exact, and you can give 100 examples of your own, and he does. But it's the idea that in, in an age like ours of mechanical reproduction, the thing to look for is not similarity, it's not repetition, but difference, because the differences are so interesting. In Thierry de Duve's words, the infrathin separation is working at its maximum when it distinguishes the same from the same. Now think of the information retrieval on the computer. One wrong or missing letter or accent or space, and often you won't be able to access the item you're looking for on a given website. I mean, we, know we all have this experience all the time. One thing wrong and nothing will happen. It's either one thing right or wrong, um, and it's invalidated. Formatting, symbol, hyperlink, all these depend upon 100% accuracy of reproduction and the correct choice of yes or no. There are no maybes when it comes to internet shopping as a, a password. So infrathin is verboten. It really is on the computer. The poet in these circumstances becomes the person who can call this uniformity into question. And of course, that's what poetry and the always done. Call uniform language, everyday, you know, language, journalism, so forth, into question. And given electronic text demand for 100% alphabetic and numerical accuracy, poets are paying more attention than ever to the individual letter, the morphine, the phoneme, the empty space. Peter Gizzi has recently published um, a poem called When Orbital Proximity Feels Creepy, of which the concluding lines are, the wobble of light on wood grain late in the day, in the loneliness of orange, in the loveliness of orange. Is that a misprint or a different meaning? Now notice that N is really an upside down V, I mean in our alphabet. So it's a very slight change, but of course changes the meaning completely. And watch for that, you'll see that. Um, in so much interesting poetry now, how much you can do with the very smallest thing. Okay, so this next section is called Viva Via. I'm going to begin with some examples, and I hope to get through them before people have to leave. And um, of what in Finnegan's Wake James Joyce dubbed the verbi vocal visual. Here, the Brazilian concrete and post-concrete movements have been especially notable. In the mid-60s, Augusto de Campos made a computer version of a single-line poem called Cidade, City, Cique, originally printed on a pull-out page from a book. The poem consists of one long horizontal word string made from 29 prefixes that, when complemented by the suffix Cique, City, create a series of nouns, all of them attributes, concrete and contradictory, of the modern <coughs> metropolis, the Cité, City, Cidade of the title. Now, note that it's a trilingual poem. He's chosen words that are almost identical across Portuguese, English, and French. For example, we won't go through all of them, atrocity, multiplicity, velocity, and of course, city itself. So I put up here the whole text in alphabetical order. Alphabetical. You see how many words they are? And they all have that prefix. And they all have, they all have the same suffix. So that was the original root of the thing. Now, in the 1980s, Augusto and his son, Cid de Campos, read, in the form of a round, the 29 prefixes, um, 319 letters of Cite, Cidade, Cite, in a kind of bravura performance, and I'll play you that. <laughs> Sí, sí, sí. 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 Sí, sí
All right, so that was one version, um, the prefit read in one breath, in a performance version for a multimedia festival at the SSC, SESC Pompeii in 1996, this time using the image of a computer punch card. It looked like that, quite lovely in its way. He starts with that computer um, a punch card. Augusto and Sid use musical accompaniment and photographs of urban scenes from Sao Paulo to create a more dramatic impression. So, now you'll see this one. And he's, he's done them over now many times. Sorry. Talvez o mais curto poema longo, ou quem sabe, o mais longo poema curto que já se escreveu sobre esta cidade. 150 letras, uma só linha. A troca do capa caucho, duplo elástico, periférico, fundo história, logo a nutrimento de múltiplo organo imperial de plástico público, rapa recíproco, rústico, saga sentida na vela, vela viva, onívora, cite, cite. A troca do capacauste do pelastro ferifero fogo história logo no primeiro mundo. A troca do capacauste do pelastro ferifero fogo história logo no primeiro mundo. Que vem imperial de plástico fogo. Rapa recibo russo e saca circuita na vela vela troca do capacauste. Sipi, sipi. A troca do capacauste do pelastro ferifero fogo história logo no primeiro mundo. Que vem imperial de plástico fogo. Rapa recibo russo e saca circuita na vela vela. And I'll skip this next one, which is to me almost too film-like in any case. But anyway, um, one of Augusto's most famous concrete poems is the seemingly simple 1973, it was made as early as 73, ideograph Viva Vaya, composed of red and white triangles with just those few letters, B-I-V, A, uh, it reproduces the cover of one of Augusto's most important collections, covering the years 49 to 79. It's also been rendered as a three-dimensional piece. Uh, Viva, long live, hooray, the most common cheer in Spanish and Portuguese, juxtaposed to via, boo, get out, so on. Whereas as a unit, the two words, so to speak, constitute the phrase, long live the curse, or in colloquial English, long live the box cheer. It's like a box cheer. Augusto evidently had in mind the contrast between the audience response and had a specific occasion, which you couldn't know, to the great tropicalismo singer Quetano Veloso at a rock concert in 1968, Viva, and the via condemnation of the same performance by the newly installed junta that was to arrest and jail Veloso for purported political crimes. So it looks so pretty, but it had that 
derivation. The red and white triangles call into question the binary opposition of viva versus via, as does the fact that the two terms use exactly the same three letters. Now, recently, the Brazilian poet Andre Valias, who's doing very interesting work, was trained as a graphic designer, made an animated version of Viva Vaya, which I want to play. Six faces of haphazard, and um, the hexaemeron, the six faces of haphazard. And this is the way this works it ironizes the genre theological treatise. Just an interesting experiment. Okay, 
So, enough of those. Now, a video poem, like La Lisa the Hexameron, with its play on the fonts composing lessness, is essentially a conceptual <coughs> one. As in Solowitz's famous prescription, everything in the work is subordinated to the text's governing idea. And in recent years, American poetry, which I'm not going to turn to, are, in English, in a move away from its focus on the ruminations of experience of a particular lyric speaker, has concerned itself increasingly, again, with appropriation, citation, borrowings, and the refiguration of familiar material. The poet Susan Howe, for example, is best known for her elaborate, many of you probably know her book, My Emily Dickinson, which is, became quite famous for a revisionary feminist work, Pierce Arrow, The Midnight, and so forth. But recently, in her most recent book, one of her most recent books, The Quarry, which came out last year, and which this is from, it looks at first like an essay. It's called an essay. And that's something to watch for today when you look at poetry, that some things are not cold poems, that they may be much more poetic, and are called essays. The quarry contains a set of essay, and the title essay is the one I want to talk about, and it's really a meditation on Wallace Stevens, who is Howe's favorite poet, and basically what it does, it takes material from Stevens, recycles it and refigures it in certain ways and makes it new in the most amazing way. I'm always finding new things in it. Now, first of all, a quarry is an open-air excavation from which stone for building or other purposes is obtained, right? By cutting, blasting, or the like. A place where rock has been or is being cut away. Further, by a nice coincidence, and of course one wouldn't know this, but I'll just mention it, Susan Howe lives at 115 New Quarry Road in Guilford, Connecticut, an hour's drive from Stevens, Hartford, whose particular geography, with its seasonal extremes, is also hers. The Quarry's title essay, in any case, cuts into Stephen's final volume, The Rock, excavating words and lines that Howe recharges, making them her own. And subsequent essays do this with other material. I won't talk about that now. Um, she uses Celtic myths, all kinds of things are coordinated. Now, um, it starts out with March, what might look like accidental sightings, March. Someone has walked across the snow. Someone looking for he knows not what. That's the epigraph for the first section roaming of the quarry's opening essay, which is called Vagrancy in the Park. Vagrancy in the Park. It opens with an italicized citation, singing spells, referring to myths, folk tales that Susan Howe learned from her Irish mother. And she begins with a sentence that seems almost childlike, the poetry of Wallace Stevens makes me happy. This is the simple truth. Pleasure springs from the sense of fluid sound patterning. Phonetic utterance excites in us. Beauty, harmony, and order are represented by the arrangement and repetition of particular words on paper. But how knows only too well that this simple truth is never so simple, and that arrangement is the most complex of processes. So the epigraphs comes from a short poem in the rock called Vacancy in the Park. And that poem goes like this, Stevens's poem. It is like the feeling of a man come back to see a certain house. The four winds blow through the rustic arbor under its mattresses of vines. Now, if you look at the photograph on the title page, and then the next one, there are two photographs. The first winter in winter, or in the late fall, and the second one is taken in summer. Hardly striking pictures. It's called Ring Around the Roses. Both are images, so she notes, of a small <coughs> pavilion or rustic arbor in Elizabeth Park in Hartford that Stevens frequented. The first one taken in the winter and, this, and, and uh, becomes in Howe's own poetic text, Vagrancy 
is the poet herself who is the vagrant roaming through Stephen's park and singing her own spells. And vagrant also recalls, and she does a lot with this in the course of the poem, I can't go through it all now, uh, Emerson's and Thoreau always linking vagrant with the word extravagant, two words that we don't think of as together. But that's the root of extravagant, is vagrant. That's what the word extravagant really means. I fear chiefly, wrote Thoreau, lest my expression may not be extravagant enough, may not wander far enough beyond the narrow limits of my daily life so as to be adequate to the truth of which I am convinced. In a similar vein, Howe writes, I owe Stevens an incalculable debt for ways in which through word frequencies and zero zones, his writing locates, rescues, and delivers what is various and vagrant in the near at hand. So she's playing with these words. Those are the words she plays with. Again, again, vacancy, vagrancy, extravagant. In coming to terms with Stevens' nothing that is not there and the nothing that is in The Snowman, Howe writes as if from deep inside Stevens' world. Here she is on the course of a particular in which the leaves cry, hanging on branches swept by wind in Stevens. And she writes, most critics read the season as autumn. For me, it's lyric austerity defines late February weather in Guilford, Connecticut. Often on afternoon walks, winter walks, out on the quarry during this coldest month, there's hardly any foliage to cry in the raw air. Some brittle oak leaves still cling to their branches like tattered camouflage, while tiny salt hay spindles scud across withered grass and frost-worked asphalt. Smoke drift from indoor wood stoves and another is another vagrant variant. Now the passage begins matter-of-factly with the differentiation of late winter from autumn in Connecticut. But soon the imagery becomes increasingly graphic and the sound structure highly rhythmic and figured. Interesting rep intricate repetitions of voiceless and voice stops aligned with the spirons ST in the fricative. Salt rhymes with asphalt, vagrant echoes variant, which is itself a variant of vacant. Sound repetition rises to a Keatsian pitch as Howe notes that Stevens deploys the obsolete pious part of participle, shapen, shapen snow, whose pastness echoes in the sound of wind sowing through pitch pines. And now she makes us aware of her own presence in the landscape. On my way home, I see a small stream rushing along under ice. Maybe the nature of a particular can be understood only in relation to sound inside the sense it quickens, setting sun. A morning dove compounds invisible declensions. Deep dove, placate you in your hiddenness. Now the line comes from an earlier Stevens poem called The Dove in the Belly. But the dove's invisible declensions also bring to mind the famous conclusion of Sunday morning, where casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. And further, in how spontaneous particulars, another book, The Dove, The Psalmist Dove, invoked by Jonathan Edwards' sister mourning his death, is also Henry James's Dove in the Wings of the Dove, the novel where James so perfectly finds its form for the works that follow after. The Wings of the Dove is one of Howe's sacred texts, and in spontaneous particulars, James's heroine, Millie Thiel, becomes a spectral emblem of suffering. Even her name, Thiel, T-H-E-A-L-E, suggests an aspirate puff of breath that complicates his fictional bird woman with wealth, theatricality, and death. So you would 
how does that compare to somebody like Sharon Olds? It's in prose, so you know it isn't calling attention to itself as a poem. But in fact, it's much more poetic than that because everything is related, and then there are layers of things that relate to the sources. So that allusion and source are terribly important because it is, in a way, an homage to Stevens and her own view of Stevens. And if you go through, every single thing has its finger on that particular relationship. Theatricality and depth. As vagrancy in, par in the park unfolds, each section develops some aspect of the sound inside the sense. It quickens. The first line of the Stevens poem, Sonambulisma, on an old shore of the Volga Ocean Rolls, prompts how to puzzle over the poet's obsession with the consonant R. And um, that's, that's hard to show right here. But there's a very interesting little session on that. And in the midst of her R passage, we come to this almost phantasmagoric passage. As we grow old, we return to our parents. Their absent submission to the harsh reality of death renders the tangle luminous. A stellar pallor hangs on strips of silver bubbling before the sun. The spell is broken. There they are, embarking with other happy couples for Cythera. Now the reference here, I think, is to Watteau's brilliant little painting, The Embarkation for Cythera. The paint is luminous and silvery figures their fragile figures rendered here in falling rhythm, again with elaborate repetition of R's and S's. Cythera, a kind of paradise, is never reached. It isn't in the painting either. Indeed, Stephen's River, this side of Stygia, the river of rivers in Connecticut, and there are a lot of R's there again, flows nowhere like a sea. In the end, Howard says, following Stevens, she can only be a realist. And so on the penultimate page of the text, we read, these days, I listen to the high-speed Acela Express rushing through the remaining traces of woodland surrounding this four-and-a-half-acre, exuberant, almost suburban lot on the Northeast Corridor en route to Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. Amtrak owns the land immediately bordering the tracks. Recently, there's been a lot of hammering into the rock at night for some reason, connected with a five-year plan for deploying free Wi-Fi internet service on all trains, including slower regional ones. It's the new millennium, post-911, spangled bleeding banners, war's carnage, the global war on terror, Guantanamo, metadata, relationships, fracking, plastic bags, nuclear power plants, climate change, global warming, black holes, possible human extinction. A little reality check, just a shade tongue-in-cheek, cataloging those items most poets at this very moment are writing about. True, there's no Cythera at the end of the Acela line train, only a passage through Hartford in a purple light, a town first stumbled upon in June 1636 by a group of pilgrims traveling the 100 plus miles from Cambridge through a hideous and trackless wilderness. Vagrancy in the park is by no means a nostalgia trip. We get this passage, almost done with that. Late last night when I couldn't sleep, I wondered at how the cold reversal of moonlight on snow from outside brightens the commonplace stillness of the house and how quietly night stands open to us and sits up for us, not fastening the door. Now there's no closure in this very 21st century elegy, no Miltonic fresh woods and pasture new, as the poet finds herself on the beached margin after long pilgrimage, waving to the quiet moon. Remember that a few pages earlier, she was reciting her starlight, star-bright prayers, but to herself, she noted that looking at a new moon through glass was and is terribly unlucky, according to my mother's divination, so I can't take a chance of accidental sighting. To be true to Stevens, the door must stay open. 
It's long been a cliche that the language poets, with whom Susan Howe is loosely grouped because she taught the Buffalo Poetics Program with Charles Bernstein in the later 80s and 90s, are not true poets at all, failing as they do to present lyric emotion to dwell in subjectivity. But Howe's hidden connections and echoes create an emotional resonance that is nothing, I think, if not moving. Part one of Vagrancy in the Park, and we'll conclude with that, concludes with the lines, Fishmore on the beached margin after long pilgrimage, waving to the quiet moon. And what happens here is that Stevens Hartford in a purple light seems to have morphed into an Irish land seascape. It was the Molly Malone of the famous ballad who was a fishmonger. How, who is relating Molly Malone to her own Irish mother, named Molly, Molly Manning, concludes her long pilgrimage, or is it Stevens, on the beached margin, waving in an echo of Coleridge's frost at midnight to the quiet moon. In this mesmerizing moment, the piece began with the setting sun, essay and elegy, an elegy for Stevens, but also for the poet's mother, and later in the quarry for her lost husbands and father, as well, become one. So this is a really new way of writing an essay, and they're characterized as essays, but of course they aren't. They're really much closer to prose poems, and they can be read that way. Now then you can ask, well, why do, we can talk about that later, why do it as an essay rather than do it as a normal poem? Come back to that question. I'm going to conclude now with a poem, and I hope those have to leave can stay for this, because it's the conclusion. Houses of very literary poetry, so much depends upon allusion, reference, archive. But this is not to say that lyric is absent. Indeed, if as Virginia Jackson reminded of in her essay on lyric, for the encyclopedia been reading that, for the encyclopedia of poetry and poetics, lyric with its derivation from the Greek musical instrument, the lyre, was from its inception a term used to describe a music that could no longer be heard. And so in a way, that's what she works with here. Music that can no longer be heard, and then has morphed into other forms. Now, I'm going to conclude with a poem that is recognizably lyric in the broadest sense, and yet very much in sync with our digital age, I think, and with appropriation, and with uh, using, using and found text in many ways. And that's an elegy by Charles Bernstein written in 2008 for his adored daughter, Emma, who tragically took her own life when she was 23. And the question for the poet, a poet who isn't used to writing very personal things at all, was how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that at all? That kind of tragedy. And so here is a poem that looks like a more normal poem than like a print block, but you'll see. And it's called Today is the Last Day of Your Life Till Now. I was the luckiest father in the world until I turned unluckiest. They shoot horses, don't they? In the mountains, the air is so thin you can scarcely say your name. I dreamt I was a drum. In the dream, I dreamt I was a schoolboy afraid of school. I dreamt I was drowning. Far away, the crush of snow refracted the still muted light, as if punishment was not punishment enough. Now, this little 12-line poem comes from the volume Recalculating, 2013, a few years ago, where Bernstein includes many translations and adaptations, and we have so many people here working on translation, um, that have obliquely given this would-be anti-expressivist poet permission to treat of his own lost love, from autopsychographia, which is after Pessoa, to be drunken after Baudelaire, and Le Pont Mirabeau Apollinaire. In other words, if you can't say it in your own words, it's too painful. Then you find something you can use, another person's poetry. And he's not really very good at languages. He uses 
trots, he'll have to in a way, but it's very moving when you hear his version of the poem in Abel, that somebody who can't talk about his own grief is going to use whatever you can use to do it, but you're not even going to try to do it yourself in a way. But today is the last day of your life till now. It looks at first like this straightforward print block we associated with conventional poets like Sharon Olds, no visual or sonic devices, as in the poetry of Augusto de Campos. And aren't those opening lines, I was the luckiest father in the world, until I turned the luckiest almost, un almost painfully raw in their reference to the loss of the beloved. Well, as in his satire, which is his normal mode, Bernstein avoids all personal reference. We know nothing about Emma, not even her name, and certainly not the circumstances of her death or the facts of her life. Nor do we know anything about his father's own life. He provides no excuses, no explanations. Rather, the poet turns to seemingly irrelevant references, like the one to the 1969 film, or rather the expression, they shoot horses, don't they? Mm -hmm. I, I almost can't read that without starting to cry, because it's just so painful, yeah, that idea that when you're talking about somebody's death, you say, well, they shoot, I can't stand it, they shoot horses, don't they? in which a group of losers and derelicts engage in a dance of death. When a horse is suffering, it's taken out of its agony of a poet, the poet, just as the jagged shape of the 12-line print block alludes ironically to a normative epitaph, so its lines allude parodically to the commonplaces and cliches we hear every day, beginning with the title. Today is not, as the cheery song would have it, the first day. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Start eating Wheaties, remember that song here? but it's conversely the last day of your life till now. Both formulations are, of course, strictly speaking, true. And then the adage, in the mountains, the air is so thin you can barely breathe becomes you can barely say your name, a phrase that doesn't quite seem to follow until we realize that, yes, this poet has all but lost his name. I dreamt I was a drum. It's less a narrative of dream content than a visceral description. To feel like a drum is to feel one's head and heart pounding unbearably, even as to dream that one is a schoolboy afraid of school must be the ultimate nightmare since everybody has to go to school. So the poet's dreams are unbearable, but they're also wishful films. No doubt he would like to drown, but already in another nature cliche, the still muted light is coming up refracted by a crush of snow that hurts the eye. It seems there's no choice but to go on, as if, and here's a parody of another well-known cliche, as if the loss of your love were not punishment enough. Here it is, as if punishment were not punishment enough. And we all know, you know, the, the source of that. So what we have here is an elegy in the romantic tradition of, say, the Wordsworth's Lucy poems, but in the 21st century, such an elegy cannot avoid its time and place in a world where the Twitter feed and Facebook chat sticker have already expressed your mood for you. Your personal grief can appear only in the ironized and parodic context of the always already spoken or read. The excessive alliteration of ugly you sounds in the opening lines and of dream, dreamt, drum further on makes the poem sound almost jingly. And yet the very individual heartbreak comes through, especially in the momentary expression of the death wish, they shoot horses, don't they? Read it backwards, as Stephen Dedalus suggests, and we're left with enough punishment, not, not what? Or again, read line two backwards, unluckiest turned I until, and you have a provocative anticipation. As in Augustus de Campos Cotigo, meaning is multiplex. And this is the special pleasure of a post-linear poetry, a poetry at once of the current moment, and yet at every point aware of the traditions that stand behind it. Thank you.